Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ba-na-na-na. Got that mm. music memorized. Huh? Okay, what's up, man? Welcome. Now, welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. I'm just gonna let that music play. I listened to uh, Daniel Daniel Torden's latest episode. Yeah, DT. And he the always, man. He always has music playing in the back like this, just yeah, constantly. Yeah. Yep. But, it, but he, I didn't realize this, but he's actually a musician and records. Oh no shit. Yep. Cool man. So all that stuff you hear in the background. Gotta have that guy on again. Yeah, we're going to for sure. Um, he, uh, so anyway, his last episode was, um, I heard, I heard a, I saw a tweet about him having a girlfriend and I was like, man, I felt, I felt so happy for him just because of the, the situation that guy's been through with his, uh, divorce and kind of, uh, being yeah. excommunicated from the church and losing his family. He said his, his ex-wife, um, moved with their kids after, Oof. after they were divorced and didn't tell him where she moved. So ah, he's fuck, he's got man. teenage kids and doesn't even know where they are. It's so fucked that people are allowed to do that. I know. Yeah, where's the where's the where's the human rights people? Where's the uh, all the same people that would get upset if a if a man did that to uh, a woman? In fact, if a man did that to a woman, she would call the police. Oh, there man. would be a manhunt for the kids because Absolutely. they were abducted. This poor guy, man. But he met a girl, and uh, you know he just seems. He just, yeah, you know, he just seems like he's opening up a new, a new page, and he's super happy about it's it. Beautiful, it's beautiful. And he, and during his um, sort of dialogue about it, he was talking about all the, all the stuff that's happened to him. He's like, you know, I, I, I got divorced. I went through therapy. Uh, I started a podcast. <coughs> I met this girl, and he, and he brought up his, uh, his interview on the Two Tongues podcast. Sweet. I just felt, I just felt like, um, uh, what's the word, honored. To, to to have a place in that guy's spiritual journey that we were a footnote you know that he that he thought was worthy of mention uh, I just felt honored by that you know yeah that's awesome uh, I hear people talk about like building bonds in podcasting communities and you know like YouTube and stuff like that all the time um, and I was kind of trying to do that in the libertarian community on Twitter mm-hmm. for a while yep. but I my account got deleted. So. Yeah, and you were doing that pretty well. Yeah, I was networking pretty there well. Was there some traction. The yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, people helping people. Then I got zucked. Although I guess not zucked. Zuckerberg doesn't own Twitter. Mm. Now he owns Meta. Have we talked about Meta. No, at all? we haven't. We haven't. The only thing that I've heard about it, I haven't got into it deeply. Yeah, but me only, neither. Only thing I heard about it that I thought was interesting was people buying real estate, digital real estate. What in the Sam Hell kind of gimmick is that, man? I don't know, man. There's no such thing as digital real estate. <laughs> there is now, dude. It is an there infinite is now, brother. It is infinite capacity for free communication. And if you're trying to if you're trying to lock it down and own it, you're a fucking monster. What so when 
what are you imagining this digital real estate as? Like locking, what do you, when you say locking it down, what do you mean? You have to go to Meta, i.e. Facebook's universe to do your shopping, to, to do your, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, so, social media, whatever it is that Meta is going to have in their, in their quote unquote digital space. You, you, there's now a gatekeeper named motherfucking Zuckerberg that will, that you have to be, and you're going to have to follow Meta's rules and you're going to have to, you, who knows what, you know, what data you're going to have to share with them and they're going to control the whole infrastructure and you're going to, and it's going to be in your interest to do that. Rather than doing what we all do now, completely free and, un- and relatively unregulated, anything you want to do online, now we're going to have to do it in his little system, just like Facebook, right? In his little system, because that's where everybody is, right? I guess. I never really thought about that as the end goal of it. Why else would you buy a, a, a mythical piece of real estate, Kyle? I don't know. I kind of just thought of it as like some little goofy, almost like a video game thing. <laughs> Yeah, I see what you mean, like like a sim sort of thing where you're going and t- talking to people's avatars and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But you can also do your shopping there. You can also do your social media there. You can also do, you know, I don't know what they're going to build there, mm. but they're going to get people, they're going to get people to want to come to their section of the internet where everything, everything cool is and I all guess, your friends are. I don't know. I guess I don't necessarily have a problem with that idea uh, as long as it's not, as long as they're not making it mandatory or coercing other people uh, you know competitors out of existence which is exactly what they do so yeah that's i mean that so where my mind goes there is uh is um oh i'm losing it now i, I gotta tell you man i have not slept well in three days and my brain is not functioning all the way it's all right. you know, i'm at like about 40 percent capacity you're down here with me this episode <laughs> uh what was i saying um i lost it oh well meta meta man meta bro um, I don't know. That was a stupid little tangent anyways. Yeah, what, I have another stupid little tangent. You know how like sometimes when we have these episodes, if it's not structured, well, you and I would just talk about whatever's on the top of our mind or whatever we heard that was interesting. Yeah. And I heard something that was interesting, and it made me think a little bit conspiratorially, and I want to ask you about it. Okay. All right, so you know how with the COVID restrictions and mandates, we've got states that are... Uh, highly conservative with conservative leadership that are much more free than the than the uh, liberal states. Isn't that a funny thing, man? Even just to say that the conservative states are more free than the liberal states, it should be a conflict of terms, but it's not, and it's so it's frustrating. Yeah. But what you have is people leaving in droves, California and New York, right? So there's like real estate available in Manhattan now that's like never been available it always gets chomped up as soon as it comes open somebody buys it yep. and now they're just vacant it's crazy and hundreds of thousands of people leaving california for texas and and oregon and surrounding areas just going to ruin other states it, this is my this is my thing do you think because the, you know how we talk about the liberals being so good in terms of playing three or four moves ahead with chess and the uh the republicans are not they're like always dealing with one move or two moves and the liberals are always like four or five moves in advance. They're they're way better at playing the game, and uh, it, it frustrates me that it's a game at all. But they're way better at it anyway. So imagine it's on purpose that the liberals have taken this diehard extreme view on COVID and the lockdowns and the mandates. They're going to push all of this big government authoritarian business on these big cities, these big blue cities and blue states, causing people for one reason or another to leave those states and go to red states. 
because they're not going to, they're not, if they do that, they're not going to lose the voters that are remaining in California and New York. They're still going to vote blue. Yeah. But the ones that leave and go to the red states, they're going to vote blue. Exactly. Yep. So my question is, do you think it's on purpose that the, that, that the liberals are pushing people out of blue states into red states to try to take those territories over? That's not a bad theory at all. Um, yeah, I, I think the way that it should be in a perfect world is that these people leaving New York and California have their little, you know, come to Jesus moment and they understand that this overreach is what's causing the problems. Um, but it's not going to happen. Like you said, these people are going to move to Texas and they're going to vote in Democrats and they're going to ruin Texas. Mm. Um, you know so. you know how they're replacing all of those blue voters that are pushing out of New York? They are allowing illegal immigrants to vote. 800,000 yeah, yeah. illegal immigrants can now vote in New York. Unbelievable. It's fucking crazy. Listen, man, all you have to do is scratch the surface of that and say, what, what is possible on the con side if you allow people who are living in a... In a society illegally to participate in politics what that says is you don't have to be from here you can just come here and take it over and we're not going to stop you yeah that's what it says yeah pretty and, much and that's seemingly what the intention is yeah uh, what, what you know but what happens on the other side you know if the liberals allow that to happen because it's for their benefit what happens when the conservatives start doing it you know it's like we're just going to bring in a bunch of uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe that are super anti-communist, and we're going to give them voting rights? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I don't hate that idea, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't see the Republicans doing that. I don't see the conservative side doing that. I see them doing nothing like they always do. Yep. Um, and I would see... I, if they were to do something, I would see it more being like the people doing something. Um, uh, probably the Trump contingent in the in the Republican Party doing something. Mm. Um, probably something stupid. <laughs> probably something that's not going to help. Yeah. But yeah, otherwise, just like your establishment Republicans, they're in on it. You know, like I think that they're they don't care at all about they they might make a big show about it. Uh, about caring, but they don't actually care about the immigration. I don't believe, mm. um, because they're they're establishment. You know, it, what benefits, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. There's a guy that's running for office here in our area. His name's Bernie Marino. Have you Bernie seen Bernie Marino? Have you seen the yeah, Bernie seen, Marino commercials? I've seen the yard signs. Good God, man! So he's a conservative, and he's out oh. here vo- um, putting himself out with these commercials. Uh, trying to push back against all this liberal stuff, the overreach and the mandates and stuff that, that are uh, like validly concerning lots of people. But the way he's done it is so wrong. It's so terrible. I can't believe somebody didn't tell him, like, where are the guys? What's he doing? All right, he puts these commercials on where he, go, where he says, Bernie Marino, pro-Trump. Anti-immigration. We got to stop these. We got to stop these foreigners from changing our country. And uh, you know, just it's just like the most over the top. Like if you if there's a reason to be to to um, be sympathetic to the conservative position on these issues, there and there is and there's lots of people that support that. There's zero reason to make it sound racial and to make it sound 
like all of the things that people hate about about the conservative yeah. um you know viewpoint there's no reason to like to, to like uh, put that on so thick and he did it on purpose it's so it's so fucking i don't know man i uh I don't think it's necessarily a smart way to go if you're trying to win over the masses. But I think if you're appealing to, like, the Trump base, I don't think that's a bad way to go, honestly. But don't, um, but don't you think there's already enough, like, reason? If he, were to say, if he were to come out here and say, you know, the liberal agenda that's been, you know, shoved down our throats for the last blah, blah, blah years has done all of these negative things. You can see inflation. You can see the supply chain issues. You can see the government overreach. You can see the freedoms being whittled away. You can say all of that. And everybody, all those people that you just talked about, all those Trump supporters are going to be like, exactly. You don't have to say ra- stuff that sounds racist and, and is divisive. We don't need divisive stuff right now. But, okay, I don't think that Trump was necessarily a racist uh, no, any, any more than anybody else is. Um, I do think that Trump said things that were easy for people to make sound racist, mm-hmm. and I think that he did it on purpose a lot of the mm-hmm. time um, because – you know, it's the outrage. Like that, Trump was fueled by the outrage. His entire, the entire presidency, the entire run up to the yep. presidency. Yep. Um, and I think that there's like, I don't think that making it about race is a good idea. But I also can't really blame people who make it about race when the other side has been making it about race for the last, you know, however long it is. And yeah. like, I don't think it's wrong for white people who are accused of being racist all the time to stand up and say, I'm not racist. It's not racist of me to speak the truth about people. Um, Amen. So, I, I mean, I don't know. This guy, maybe he's... I, I haven't seen the commercial, so it's hard mm. to say. But it just, it just comes across like he's, he's, he's asking for you to vote for Trump... Oh yeah, and and by that he means vote for him. I've seen that type of thing. I don't know that I've seen Bernie, but I've seen some people like gratuitously trotting Trump out. You know, it's despicable as far as I'm concerned. It's the it's the wrong approach, and uh, I just think there's so much leverage in in his favor to not have to do that. He shouldn't have done that. I think that one of the things that I kind of want to see, and I don't think it's going to happen. Um, even if Dave Smith does get the, the nomination for the Libertarian candidate, I think that Dave Smith is, I don't know, man, I think is going to walk down the exact same path that a lot of other liber- – well, a few other Libertarians have walked down. And it's like they're really edgy and shit right mm-hmm. up until it's time to, like, get safe in the election. And then it's like, you know um, – so. don't, don't you think he, he's the kind of guy that realizes that the – likelihood of winning is basically zero and that he if he could get in a debate stage nationally that he would just completely maybe i hope so i would love i would love to see that uh but what i want is you know we were talking about that bernie marino guy uh being controversial saying things that are uh well i want dave to take that to the extreme um you know uh i want him to or i want somebody anybody to do more of what Trump did in the sense of I'm going to do all of the things that you say are bad and I don't fucking care. I don't care if you call me racist for it because it's obvious to anybody who's watching this and paying attention. It's obviously not fucking racist Um, or whatever. Now we're focusing on racism, but you know um, 
sexist, tra- transist is you, what is what's the word I'm looking for there? Transphobic. Transphobic. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. All the other phobias and isms. Oh god, who the gives isms. a shit? The isms are a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And that's um, what I want. That's what I, I want. Somebody who's like, you go, you go ahead, call me whatever you want. I don't fucking care. Any any ism is an ideology. Every ism is an ideology, and anybody who says I'm an ism, you're a fucking idiot. I mean, you, if you, if you, if you, seriously, it's short-sighted. You're painting yourself into a box that you cannot forever live in. It's 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 ridiculous. But yeah. but it's all about teams, man. Because people don't like to think further than that. What about pandeism? Well, I was going to tell you something about pandeism. First of all, I I would, um, as much as I like the ideas about pandeism and pantheism, I'm not painting myself into a box on that. That's great. But I did see on Twitter somebody um, posted a um, a painting from yeah. the from the 1800s. I don't remember who the guy's name was, but it's just an amazing classical painting. And I've always liked classical art, but as you can see, there's none in here. Yeah. Uh, there's no classical art in here. It was a, a Greek um, god, psyche. The, the goddess psyche and she's like right like i don't know what she's doing if she's talking to or dancing with um pan you know cloven hoofed pan mm-hmm. so it's psyche and pan together and i'm like and the guy who posted on twitter is like pan psychism is the as the uh, title and then Ooh, pan and psyche i didn't even put that together <clears throat> and it was a beautiful painting and i was like oh <laughs> i was like five seconds later i was on amazon buying that buying that print, print yeah. so now i got to find a place to put it in here um, I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. I've been going down uh, a little bit of a witchcraft. Oh, I wanted to ask you about hole. that. Yeah. I, I got, we'll, we'll talk about it uh, eventually. Um, but I, there, I've seen a lot of cool witchcraft art from like the 1500s. Ooh. Um, it, it, I would like to buy some of that shit. It's pretty Ooh. sweet. Uh, I think I told you this, but I don't think the audience has heard this. Um, when Josh Hamilton was on the podcast last time, um, we were talking about, maybe before the podcast, his sister... Because she is, um, she is a self-professed witch, sweet, and also a Christian. So like both, all right, sweet. So she believes in like the uh, the ritual stuff, the power of ritual and magic and all that stuff, which is kind of like the stuff that you're tiptoeing around with mm-hmm. like paganism. Yeah. But also a Christian, and I thought having her on, shout out to Becky, having her on might be interesting. That would be cool. I would like that talking about that. Yeah. You know, because I want to know how how does she. How does she merge those two? <laughs> I would like to know that too. I mean, you know, you I know you know that there's Christian mysticism and that there's yes, there's definitely some overlooked parts of Christianity. You know, like some stuff that uh, I think your average kind of Bible beating evangelical Christian is not necessarily hip to. Um, but I don't know. I could be wrong about that. Maybe they know more about it than I'm aware of. I, I just had this thought that popped in my head. I was watching this documentary on Curiosity Stream that I've watched before, but I was re-watching it, and I can't remember the lady's name. She's a British uh, archaeologist or some kind of academic. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like middle-aged, Bethany something or other. She, she's a pretty lady. She's got dimples. Um, she, she, she did this uh, documentary, and it was three parts. first one was Buddha. The second one was Socrates. And the third one was Confucius. Because those three people lived in a... Um, within a pretty short period of time, you know, and they were all so, like, revolutionary in terms of the way they, the way they think. Um, and it, it's really cool, actually. It's, I can't remember what, the thing, what it's called, and I'm so sorry to the audience who's not going to be able to find it. But, um, there we'll was put this, it in the notes. There was this interesting uh, bit about Buddha, and I know the story of Buddha, but this was an interesting way of putting it, so let me tell you. So 
Buddha, when he goes on his spiritual journey, and it starts with, um, it starts with him as a as a kid. You know, he's a prince, and his father is trying to keep um, all of the evils of the world out of his mind. Like you know, just like any parent, you want to protect your kid from all the the pain and suffering of the world, and that's what Buddha's dad does. <coughs> but Buddha's dad is the uh, is the king, so he has all the resources in the world to make that happen in a way that ordinary people can't do. So he keeps him in the. Um, Keeps him in the uh, the grounds of the of the royal whatever castle, and he's never allowed to leave. But when he starts to get a little older, he's like, "Fuck that! I want to leave." So his dad goes out and tells everybody uh, that's sick or old that they have to stay inside. And he cleans everything up and makes everything beautiful. So when Buddha comes out into the village, everybody's young and beautiful and and vibrant, and you know everything's clean and. Um, that happens over and over and over, and it starts to get harder for the king to control. So then the Buddha sees somebody who's, who's sick, and then the Buddha sees somebody who's old, and then the Buddha sees somebody who's dead. Um, and that stuff just shatters his whole worldview because he's never been exposed to any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, starving people and sick people and di- dying. He didn't, you know, he was never even encountered the idea of death. And so this is what sends him out into the world to, to search for the answers. And what he does is he does... What a lot of what a lot of those philosophers do, he goes to all of the wise sages that he can find. He travels around and talks to all the wise people to ask them about the meaning of life and you know all those questions that 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 haunt us as human beings. And he came from India, so the first one of the first groups that he that he went to was the Brahmins, you know, the Hindu priests. And this is where it gets interesting. So he goes to the Brahmins and he studies with them. And they tell him all the stuff that, that the Vedanta Hindus say that I love about, about you know, uh, God being one and, you know, uh, there's being no difference between your soul and the soul of God. And, you know, uh, all the stuff, all the pantheistic stuff that I love about that type of Hinduism. And um, Buddha can't, he, he can't, he doesn't find the value in it because he hasn't had an experience that helps him to understand the value in that, in that idea. So it's like a philosophy that's dry and dead. And he goes to all those, he goes to the yogis that like starve themselves and the yogis that smoke pot all the time. And he just went around to all of those different yogis trying to figure out if there was any truth there. And he just kept coming up empty, empty, empty. So he realized that there was no no truth in the religion of the Brahmins. And I was like, oh shit, man, I don't actually agree with that. Fuck you, Buddha. But then he goes out and he has... His enlightenment experience under the Bodhi tree or whatever, he becomes, you know, becomes, uh, he, he, you know, the Buddha. Metamorphosizes. Yeah. And that experience, he describes in this interesting way, that he rises out of himself and that all of the Hindu gods are trying to stop him. Like they're throwing lightning bolts at him and like trying to physically stop his spirit from ascending. Like they're against him at this point. But he's, but he's unlocked this power that allows him to be greater even than the gods. They can't touch him because he's become enlightened. And, and I'm like, look, Buddha went out there and he had a mystic experience. He became God. How else can you, how else can you explain how the Hindu deities that he believed in were powerless against him? That he was greater even than all of the gods of Hinduism. Because he became the granddaddy god. He became, he became the top, the pinnacle of divinity in that experience. And that's, that's the describing a mystic experience. And then I'm like, okay, so what happened with Buddhism was seemingly this. The Vedanta Hindus had it right. 
They figured they had the mystic experience once upon a time. They, they knew they understood that everything is God. They understood that. But then they stopped having the experience. Then it became like this dry religion that's written in a book and nobody's having the experience anymore. So the mystic experience isn't alive. It's just in this dead tome. And I don't mean any disrespect by that because that's, a, that's the same thing with the Bible. Um, and then Buddha goes out and has the experience himself and then goes out and teaches this new religion. Truth is, it, it's not a new religion. Buddha had the same experience that the Vedanta Hindus had and uh, went out and taught it. It was alive again in Buddhism, and that's why Buddhism spread all over the all over the world and was so powerful for like fifteen hundred years. Yeah. Because Buddha was out there teaching people to have the experience, and nobody's doing that. Yep. What do you think of that, man? Um. Yeah, I mean, I never thought. I guess I never really thought about. I I, I don't know that much about Buddhism. I really only know what we've talked about on the show. Um. And I, I just never thought about it as, uh, what, how did you describe what, what Buddha was doing? Um, having the experience, uh, he was, teaching people how to have the experience. Yeah, yeah well, and, and so that's a little bit uh, deeper into the Buddhism like religion than, I, than I'm super comfortable talking authoritatively about. Yeah. But there's something called the Eightfold Path, and this is what Buddha taught. How do you reach enlightenment? It's, you follow the Eightfold Path. And I couldn't describe to you all eight points. I couldn't, I couldn't recite to you all ten commandments, probably, from memory. But it's things like right speech, right action, right intention. Um, there's eight of them. And if you can practice all of them and be disciplined to always be thinking and acting and wishing in the correct manner, that you will be disciplined and you will eventually escape the confines of your mortal you know, restrictions and become God. Got it. That's called nirvana. I like them. That's a good band. <laughs> so, um, one a grunge song popped in my head, but it wasn't Nirvana. So I was going to start singing it, and then I was like, "What yeah, song is it?" Despite all my rage, I am still yeah. just a rat in a cage. Yeah, like it's got like an operatic thing when you're singing it right now. When I when I sing things, uh, my wife constantly shakes her head. <laughs> like I like I know I can't carry a tune. I know that, but she she looks at me like the cadence is off like the timing is off and it's so off that it's it, it, that it's not the same song like you're fucking it up in a in a in a, it sounds perfectly fine in my head i'm like this is exactly how the song sounds yeah that's so. fucking funny <laughs> uh, it's weird music like i remember uh one time i was in the car with matt this is back way back in the day um with matt and some of the uh you know the people that we used to hang around with back in the day yep uh, and Matt started singing a newfound glory song, and this girl in the car was like, "You are way off." <laughs> and Matt was like super offended by that. Yeah. Or at least he acted like he was. You know, the people we used to hang out with. Shout out to Mary and Laura. Shout out to Eddie. Shout out to uh, shout out to Aaron. Shout out to Kenny and Charity. Shout oh. out to who else? Um, Jeremy and Humperdinck. Jeremy and Humperdinck. <laughs> you got it. All right, so that's an inside joke, you guys. Um, kind of. I, mean, I, I, I wanted to ask you if there's if there's been any exploration of this paganism stuff or, or magic or ritual because that was what we talked about last time, and you said you were going to start getting into it. Um, a little bit. I, I mean, I can't. I don't really want to talk about it too in depth right now because I would rather do that like yep. a, an episode. But um, a little bit, like some meditation stuff, some uh, you know. Some symbolic magic. Mm. I got a meditation thing I can tell you. 
my mom, I talked to her the other day on the phone, and she was talking about how she has trouble sleeping. And I told her that she should do what, like, the same thing that they teach you to do in meditation. When she's laying down and her, her thoughts are going or she's got images coming in her mind, just keep pushing them out mm-hmm. and, and trying to clear her mind and focus on her breathing or heartbeat or something and just push those thoughts out. And then she calls me a couple of days later and tells me she, she did it and she slept like a baby. Nice. And, I, and the way I described it to her, I'm like, if you do that over and over and over again, it's going to keep happening and it's going to get frustrating. But the more you push those thoughts away... The, the longer the duration between the next thought, you know, it's like you have more, you have a longer moment of peace before those thoughts come in your mind. Mm-hmm. And, and if you practice it, you get better and better. And then eventually those moments of peace are long enough that you can fall asleep. And that's exactly what happened to her. Yeah. I thought I was like, man, I should, you know, if I'd have known that that little piece of advice would have been helpful, I'd have told you that years ago. This do- that technique doesn't work for you in like the it, last few nights? Um, it, it does work. The, the problem is... The last few nights, I, I've just been uh, waking up, you know. Okay. I just keep waking up. Gotcha. You know. Um, Dude, I, getting old is weird, man. It is weird. I remember when I was young, I would go to sleep, and I would, you know, when I went to sleep, the next time I woke up, it was morning. You know? <laughs> it was, I was out. That is not the case anymore, man. I am up all the time. I, I was up five times to piss last night. Yeah. But this is, is that like not normal for you? Uh, usually it's not that many times. Usually it's once. I'll wake up once sometimes, and usually it's like four in the morning. Yeah. So it's pretty close to when I would be waking up anyway, because um, because my youngest is up at six in the morning every morning. Yeah. Um, and then I'll like lay there from four to six, like you know, not really able to fall back to sleep, but not willing to just get up and start my day. Uh, but la- last night was way worse. Why? I don't know. Yeah. See, I don't I don't wake up that many times to go to the bathroom, uh, but I wake up multiple times a night, every every night to, like, turn over or something yep, like that. Yep, You know. And it makes me think of, like, those, the, you remember those, uh, in the old days they said um, that people, back when people were farming, mm-hmm. you know, and by the way, that's, like, most of, this, of, of modern history, you know, that, that goes back to the beginning of agriculture, which was, like, 10,000 years ago. ago. Yeah. So, so people uh, will wake up early for, because they have to. Wake up when the sun is up and you can see. And um, they would go to sleep at night and then they would wake up about midnight. And then they would be up for like a couple hours and they would go back to sleep. It was called the second sleep. Mm. And the reason that I remember it is because where I saw this reference to the second sleep was something about um, recommendations on when you should have sex to make a baby. Oh. And the recommendation, like the wives' tale was... was um, not to have sex when you go down for your first sleep, but have sex when you go down for your second sleep. It was, that was the recommendation, and I thought, what the hell is second sleep? And I had to figure out what, what they meant by that. A little afternoon delight. So everybody in the old days would spend some time awake in the middle of the night, a couple yeah. hours, and it was normal. Yeah. That's, I've read that before, too. I didn't, I didn't necessarily hear the second sleep thing, but I've heard that like sleeping in two two periods during the day, one a little bit longer, mm-hmm. one a little bit shorter, right. um, is a good way to go. Well, you can imagine if you're at working all day hard and you co- go, come home and you eat your dinner and you go to sleep, you're exhausted. Yeah. I, I mean, I probably wouldn't want to have sex then either. I'd want to get a little nap in, yeah. you know, let, let the, let the, let the food settle. Oh yeah. Um, God, but you know what? Getting old is a real thing. I, I told you, uh, the audience didn't get to hear this, but I told you on the way down here that I was trying to get a workout in the other day and I was curling dumbbells and it's not, it weren't even that heavy. And 
I hurt my neck so bad, I can't even tell you. It's like three days of just terrible soreness and stiffness in my neck. I, I didn't think I was doing anything involving my neck, you know? It's a bicep exercise. I hurt myself, man. Yeah. It didn't, never used to happen. Bullshit, man. And if you did hurt yourself, you were fine the next day. Yes. <clears throat> now it's like I, I'll wake up. I don't know what I did, but my knee hurts. Oh, man. And it hurts for like five days. I'm limping for like five days. Um, I mean, I know I should probably go to the doctor for that when it happens, but I don't know. I just, I just say to myself, it'll go away. You know, I, I tell myself that all the time. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Uh, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a part of that that's like a, it's like a fear of the doctor, and uh, you know, it's, it's not just the fear, but it's also inconvenience and cost and stuff. There's yeah. so many reasons to not want to go to the doctor. Yeah, for uh, sure. I, I think that we're a little over doctored, though. To be honest with you, I think that America and the world in general, but I think particularly America, could do with a little bit more. Um, I'll just write it out. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. need to go take a pill. Yeah, that's so. true. But then there's people like my dad who, uh, in, on two occasions, the first one was when his appendix nearly burst because he put off that pain and was just waiting for it to go away mm -hmm. for a long time. And that dude was hunting in the woods by himself, you know, a couple of miles into the forest, and and he had to crawl out of the forest because his appendix started to rupture and he was in so much pain. And that motherfucker, that idiot, was in the forest by himself. So he, that was one example. The other example was uh, that my dad uh, ended up with, with cancer and had symptoms and kept putting that off and putting that off and putting that off. And when he went to the doctor, they're like, oh yeah, this is advanced cancer. So that's the kind of thing that like we should, we should, we should be cautious about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's true. There are, there, are, there are times to get it checked out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And being stubborn is not, not a good thing. Yeah, that's true. My grandparents were like at the fucking doctor. Man. <laughs> like, they loved going to the doctor. Yeah. Um, they did it all the goddamn time. Um, you'd think I would have taken notes on that, but no, nah, I put it off, man. I, could, the last, I can't remember the last time I was at the doctor. Yeah, yeah. If if I didn't have to go to the doctor to get my prescriptions updated or whatever, I would well, I would never go to the doctor. Yeah. Um, hey man, we've been talking for thirty minutes. We did not get into the uh, the topic of the, of today, so let me uh, rein us in. All right. All right. So we at the very beginning of the podcast we re mentioned Daniel Toradin again. Um, just a just a nice guy that we met online and, and had an interview with, and hopefully we'll have one or two more. Uh, you know whatever whatever uh, we decide and he and he's into, but. Um, uh, he recommended a book, God's Debris. I believe he said Debris. <laughs> God's de God's Debris, uh, written by the written by the guy that does the Dilbert comics. So you might think, what does a comic strip writer for the newspaper know about uh, God or his debris? Turns out that book is really interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna grab it. Hold on. It makes me the debris Debris. It uh, reminds me of, remember Eddie Izzard? Yeah, yeah. Herbs and herbs. Yeah. Because there's a fucking H in it. <laughs> yep, yep. So look at this book. How big is this book? Very small. Very small. It's a very small book. When I read this book, I took notes. And there's like two or three podcasts worth of material in this book. It's a tiny little book. And it's super, super interesting. Scott Adams. So what he tried to do in the book was to introduce a bunch of interesting ideas, and they're kind, some of them are kind of related, some of them really aren't. 
but a bunch of interesting ideas, and it takes the form of a conversation between an old man and a young man. And the old man is like the wise sage. He's like, it's a weird encounter. It's a weird conversation, but it's really interesting. So the, the young guy uh, gets sucked in by it. And that happens. You know, you've got like this young seeker of after wisdom trying to understand the mysteries of the world, encountering this old man who seems to fucking have all the answers. And th- that's what this conversation is. Right. So there's lots of different topics that pop up. Um, but if you want, we can see how far we can get. And talk about some of this stuff. It's an interesting. I didn't realize that it was structured as like a conversation. It that's is interesting. Yep, it, absolutely. It's it's a a guy that's delivering a package. So you can imagine just your your FedEx guy or your Amazon delivery guy coming to the door. Sounds and it, sounds strangely like a porno setup. <laughs> <laughs> imagine somebody like that comes to the door, and there's an old bearded man there to get his package and he just goes thank you for the package this is not the way I was expecting this porn to go an old bearded man <laughs> old bearded man um, and then they it, it, he just like hooks him in with a question or two and then the whole thing just unravels from there okay so let, maybe I'll read some of this stuff and then we can talk about it and yeah, then you tell me what you think it. I don't know how far we'll get but we'll try yeah let's dig into it alright so this alright so this section let's see okay this section I'm calling science Reality of the unseen. <clears throat> okay, so I'm just going to read a bit. Let me see how far does this go. I don't know if I want to like read it all, or yeah, it might be. Well, let's just let me just start reading some of this, and we'll see how far we go. All right. So the old man says, "Consider magnets." The old man said, "Oh God! If you hold two magnets near each other, they are attracted. Yet there is nothing material connecting them." The guy says, "Yes, there is." I corrected. There's a magnetic field. He says, so you have a word for it. It's a field, you say, but you can't get a handful of this thing for which you have a name. You can't fill a container with it. You can't cut it into pieces. You can't block its power. The young guy says, you can't block it? I didn't know that. He says, no matter what object you insert between two magnets, their attraction to each other remains exactly the same. The field of yours is strange stuff. We can see its effect. We can invent a name for it, but it doesn't exist in any physical form. How can something that doesn't exist in physical form have influence over things that do? All right, so let's stop for a second. So what he's trying to describe here is how there are things that impact the world that aren't physical. So it's an anti-physicalist type of a thing that he's proposing. And so this is the idea. And we've talked about this before, that materialism. Yep. Like scientists, this is another one of those isms, man. So scientists will say, and anybody who considers, considers themselves to be a, a rational thinker, is going to say that um, everything is physical. There is no woo-woo in the universe. There is no magic. There is no spirit. There is no God. Everything is material following physical laws, and that creates everything you see around you, including your consciousness, including something from nothing in the Big Bang. All of that stuff is it's cut and dry. It's, it's physical and f- physicality and physical laws. And it's nothing all about. atoms, bro. All atoms, bro. And what this guy is saying is, if that's the case, why don't you just consider a magnet? And you can see that there's something that's not physical that's affecting something that is physical. So he's starting to kind of tiptoe into this idea that there might be non-physical reality. Mm-hmm. And, I like that. And a, and a magnetic field might be a ver- an example of that. He's a smart old man. A smart old man. But the young guy is pushing back like, like a rational person would. He's saying, no, there's a magnetic field, and that's responsible for that. And then the old man says, it's a field, you say. But you can't get a handful of it. You can't put it in a container. You can't cut it into pieces. 
So what do you have exactly? What is this a strange kind of thing, this field? It seems like a made up, made up thing. All right, so you got anything on that before I keep reading? No, I like it, though. All right, he says, uh, consider gravity. Okay, so now we're talking about gravity. The old man continued, Gravity is also an unseen force that cannot be blocked by any object. It reaches across the entire universe and connects all things instantly. Yet it has no physical form. Scientists often invent words to fill in the holes in their understanding. Okay, I love that. Scientists often invent words to fill the holes in their understanding. Yeah, that's good. Oh, boy. A little, little postmodernism coming at you. Mm. It says, these words are meant as conveniences until real understanding can be found. Sometimes understanding comes and the temporary words can be replaced with words that have more meaning. This is good. More often, however, the patch words will take on a life of their own, and no one will remember that they were only intended to be placeholders. Yeah. For example, some physicists describe gravity in terms of ten dimensions all curled up. But those aren't real words, just placeholders used to refer to parts of abstract equations. Words such as dimension and field and infinity are nothing more than conveniences for mathematicians and scientists. They are not descriptions of reality, yet we accept them as such because everyone is sure someone else knows what the words mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yet uh, we we don't understand why electricity travels. We don't know why light travels at a constant speed forever. All we can do is observe and record patterns. What do you think? I like it. I, uh, it's, it's definitely speaking a language that I, de- I understand that, you know, yeah. I, I didn't, I had no idea that Scott Adams talked about this kind of stuff. It's amazing, right? Yeah. So this bit here, uh, reminds me of, um, where was it? Where was it? Oh, right here. Scientists invent words to, uh, to fill the holes in their understanding. This reminds me of a, of an argument. It's called God of the gaps. Yeah. So when, when people talk about the existence of God, one of the things people do is they say, if something can't be explained, then we're going to plug God in, right? It's, it's going to be a placeholder until science can give us the explanation. So if it's something's mysterious and we can't explain it with science, that's God. And as time progresses, we will slowly replace God with science, and eventually we'll be able to get rid of all the God and just be left with, with the real, with the truth. Yeah. And so that's the picture they paint. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Scott Adams is saying the same thing about science. It's like science is inventing words. You know, they're not going to call that word God. They're going to call it field and infinity and, uh, you know, dimensions. Yep. It's it's a God of the gaps argument for science. Yep. I I mean, it's – that's definitely a a good twist on a criticism that I have of, um, you know, the science crowd anymore. Most of – I mean, look at COVID and everything that's going on with the vaccine and whatnot – most of these people who are, like, shouting their recommend recommendations at you and insisting that you be forced to abide by their recommendations, a lot of these people have no fucking idea what they're talking about, and it's obvious. Mm. Um, so... I saw a tweet this morning that was... And this isn't new. We have all heard this before, but um, this follow the science stuff, mm-hmm. you know, um, that saying that with a straight face... And trying to mean by that that they're following the truth is exactly the wrong understanding of science. That science is a process of proving ourselves wrong. It's mm. never been a statement of, of absolute fact. Yeah. 
it's a process of uncovering where we're wrong. So to say follow the science is as though that means follow the truth is a complete misnomer. Yeah. It's, you have no understanding of what science means if you think that. And yet you're the one trying to paint yourself up like an expert, like, a, like the rational, logical person in the, in the debate. Following the science would be to ask questions. Absolutely. To not just trust things blindly. Um, so To try to prove things wrong. I yeah. will follow the science. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is the implication when he starts talking about magnetic fields <gasps> and then he starts talking about gravity. Mm-hmm. The implication is that gravity is one of those words that we don't really understand. That, that we, like he said, like he said here, they are not descriptions of reality, yet we accept them as such because everyone is sure someone else knows what the word means. Mm-hmm. That we all, and we do believe that. We believe there's some physicist guy or, a whole, uh, or maybe a small elite group of really smart people that mm-hmm. understand the math that know what gravity is. The truth, the truth is, nobody knows what gravity that's, is. It, that's, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Um, we know a lot about gravity. We sure. have extensive knowledge on, gra- uh, on how to escape gravity, or not how to escape it, but how to, um, you know, like, counteract gravity so we can fly planes and yep. go to the moon and shit like that, uh, if you believe that we went to the moon. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of people would take that idea like oh we know so much about gravity we can manipulate gravity blah 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 um and they would be like we know we we, i can explain what gravity is to you but you can't though you can tell me all of these like measurements of gravity Mm -hmm. and these uh these little factoids about gravity but when it comes to what gravity is why gravity exists you have no idea no idea and no idea exactly and and people who say Oh yes, we do. It's about uh, it's about the geometry of space time. Mm-hmm. That's another one of those God of the gaps thing. That is a that is a, a made up word that is connected to part some part of abstract mathematics that nobody actually understands. Yeah. Um, to say that it's a that it's that it's the shape, uh, it, you know, the stretched and bent shape of space time, is a is an image that helps you to understand a concept that you don't actually understand. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he says at the end when he says, we don't actually understand why electricity travels. We can make it travel. We, we understand all, thing, all kinds of things about it and what it, what it does and the physical laws that govern it, but we can't tell you what it is. We can't tell you why it, it moves. We can't tell you why light travels at a certain speed. We can't tell you, you know, we pretend to know and we don't. Yeah, Exactly. We know how fast light travels. We can tell you that. But why does light travel that fast and only that fast ever? And, no idea. And, and I, we'll, we'll get into I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this. But even, even people, even if you have two people traveling in a rocket ship, you know, a, a fake rocket ship, and one of them is traveling 99% of the speed of light and one of them is traveling 50% of the speed of light. This is an example he gives. Um, relative to both of those people, light is still moving at the same speed. So you would think that if you were traveling 99% of the speed of light, that the speed of light would be 1% faster than you, but it's not. It's, it's, it's exactly the same as the person traveling at 50% of the speed of light. That, that's what relativity is. Light is traveling at the same speed regardless of how, you, how fast you're moving. Oh, I get it. If you're, chasing, wow. if you're chasing a beam of light at 99% of the speed of light, it's moving away from you at the same speed as the guy going 50% of the speed of light. Okay, yeah. There's no rational understanding of yeah. why that should be the case. What that means is we don't know anything about light. 
There's some deep mystery about light. I did a, I did a, a, a podcast episode about light. I don't remember it. <laughs> For the same reason. It's, it's completely baffling. Yeah. It is. Uh, a lot of stuff is. Um, and I do kind of like genuinely hate this pretense that we understand things, you know? Maniacal arrogance, Kyle. Maniacal arrogance, absolutely. To touch back on that old uh, chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> to, say, to say that you're enlightened and that you know, you know, the meaning of life or the will of God or something like that is the same type of arrogance as for a scientist to say we understand everything that's, that's important to know about physics. Yeah. You know? Yep. Because we can because we can describe what we're seeing mathematically, and it has predictive power. Like we know what will happen if X, Y, and Z. That that's all great, and 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 it allows us to do all kinds of interesting stuff. But we don't know why. Yep. You know. That's the question. That's the question. <laughs> Anything else? Or you want to? No. We're all, right. Good. Yep. all right. How about this? This is a, a a bit called where is free will located? So he also, after talking about gravity, starts to talk about free will. He says, uh, from gravity and fields as non-physical to the soul. He says this, um, so you believe that the soul, which is not physical, can influence the brain, which is physical. So you believe the soul, which is not physical, can influence the brain, which is physical. So this is in the context of them talking about free will. And, uh, and he says, this idea of a soul is sort of an interesting one, and it's something that science would write off altogether. But you, you might talk about consciousness instead of soul, and you understand what he means when he says it's not physical. And so he's asking this guy, this rational you know, man of the, of the modern world, do you believe there's something non-physical like your consciousness or your soul that affects your brain? You know, this is like the mind-body problem. Um, so I don't know what you think about that because nobody's, there's no solution to the mind-body problem. But it's interesting because he's talking about things that aren't physical, like magnetic fields and gravity that affect the physical world. And then he starts talking about the soul or consciousness, equally non-physical, that it seems to affect our brain, which is physical. So there's a connection between things like gravity and the soul. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what to think about that. Um, I, I'm going to have to borrow this book. Yes, I take it with you. Take it with um, you. But, I mean, what is he... It's, I, I wrote this down strictly to compare and contrast between the argument he was making about gravity being non-physical and affecting the physical world yeah. and the idea that our consciousness is not physical, yet it influences our brain. Yeah, I don't know what to think about that. Like, the, Well, the idea is that there seems to be some truth to the idea that there are non-physical things that affect the physical world. And yeah. that, that's a fucking mystery, man. Yeah. Where's the, non, the non-physical stuff located? How can it affect the physical world? How does it reach across this gap from wherever non-physical is into the physical? How is that possible? And it, it, it's abstract when we're talking about gravity. But when we're talking about consciousness, every single one of us understands how that feels. You don't feel like you're exactly synonymous with your brain. You don't feel like that's the case. But your consciousness definitely acts on the brain. If you mess with the brain, you mess with your consciousness. There's a connection between the non-physical and the physical. What, what in the world does that mean? Yeah. It's a mystery, man. Well, Sam Harris, to touch back on that guy, would say that there is no non-physical element to it. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. That the brain creates the consciousness, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. So. Yeah, he would say there's no, there's no non-physical element to it. I would say it's all non-physical. Yeah. 
that, which is interesting. It's kind of there's there, there's people that call them illusionists, or I think, or something like illusionism. That people, cool. I like that. That people believe that, like the Matrix, that material reality is an illusion, and I kind of believe that. I, I'm not I, I'm not an anti-materialist. I hate to even say that, but yeah. I, I don't I don't believe that matter isn't real. I just believe that it exists within the, a non-physical plane that I call, I call that God. Mm-hmm. I think matter exists in a non-physical inside of a non-physical system doesn't make any sense i mean it does but like I, I, i'm kind of like with you uh, but it is just a hard thing to think about which i know you know i mean you've well been... the, this whole thing is going to be hard to think about all right all right moving on this one is from uh, it's called delusion generator it's the name of my metal band in high school <laughs> delusion generator it was subtitled perception and illusion Human, that was the name of our album. Human Cognitive Limitations. So here we go. This is just a couple of bits here. There is more information in one thimble of reality than can be understood by a galaxy of human brains. Okay. <laughs> First of all, just full stop, mic drop. I love that. There is more information in one thimble of reality that can be understood by a galaxy of human brains. It is beyond the human brain to understand the world and its environment. So the brain compensates by creating simplified illusions that act as a replacement for understanding. When the illusions work well and the human who subscribes to the illusion survives, those illusions are passed to new generations. Yep. Okay. I, I'm 100% on board with that. Yes. And then, the, and then the, uh, the, the young man says, I don't think rocks would be very interesting to God. They just sit on the ground in a road. And the old man says... You think that way because you are unable to see the storm of activity at the rock's molecular level or the level beneath that, and so on. To survive, our tiny brains need to tame the blizzard of information that threatens to overwhelm us. Our perceptions are wondrously flexible, transforming our worldview automatically and continuously until we find a safe harbor and a comfortable delusion. And go. What do you got? Um... What part of it? Well, this stuff here, I think, is good. He says that the brain compensates. Uh, he's, first of all, he says that the limitations of the human brain are such that we, yeah. can't, we can't observe that's, or understand everything. That's what I, I, that, that was the part that I did really like is yeah. that um, I almost, I mean, it, it kind of goes against the things we talk about in the podcast because obviously I'm interested in them. But there's part of me that just thinks, like, who cares? You know, like, um, I don't need to turn these stones over because I'm never going to understand, you know? Mm. Um, obviously that's not really how I feel because I, I, I am interested in these things, but I think it like waxes and it wanes because sometimes I do feel more like, what's the point? You know, like I'm, I'm searching for something that I am not, I don't know, physically capable of understanding. Saying physically seems weird, Mm. but in this capacity, but... It's interesting you say that, because I agree with you, but I also think that that the mystery is so compelling, and that, like, following that, following after it is so, like, fun, that it doesn't really matter to me that I'm pretty much convinced I'll never understand, you know, the the whole thing, I'll never, I'll never understand the whole thing, because what I can pick up along the way, every little tiny bit of it is awe-inspiring and, uh, you know, it's worth it yeah. to me yeah, yeah. somehow. 
But I mean, I agree with you. But this is this is the idea about about what we talk about when we talk about um, our subjective experience of the world, and then what the objective reality is like. It's like we don't know what objective reality is like because we can only see, we can only experience a small little bit of it. And um, what he's saying is that we overlay this illusion over top of this super complex system and we move around in it pretending like we understand what we're doing and we don't Mm -hmm. and when things don't go our way you know when we get when reality slaps us in the face and says you must not have understood this as well as you think as as well as you think then we make changes to our behavior then we make changes to our beliefs so that we can you know continue to survive but in reality we're just we're just running around this video game uh, that we don't understand and it's something like a Projection. It's something like an illusion. It's something like uh, a model of reality that is overlaid, you know, overlaying the actual co- super complex thing that we can never understand. Yeah. So you remember I had talked to you about, um, like, writing some Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> uh, and I had thought about um, trying to explain magic somehow Ooh, in that. I like that. And, and doing it in a way that, like... You know, thinking about reality in the way that we've been talking about, like, if you could come to understand that well enough that you could, you would basically be what people consider God to be. You know, you could will things into existence mm. it, by, by thinking about them, you know? <laughs> I love it. Um, and that that's like uh, the way that I was thinking about explaining magic. I love it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It's all t- it's all tied together with the stuff that you've been talking about with paganism uh-huh. and stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. That's honestly this stupid Harry Potter fan fiction idea is kind of what's made me like really more interested in the Norse stuff because like I like I I told you that uh you know there's different types of magic. There's like regionally different mm. different magics. Um and uh I I am more interested in like the Norse type stuff. But, uh, you know, like, Harry Potter obviously was very British magic. There's, like, Mer- you know, Dumbledore is, like, fucking Merlin, you know? Yeah. Who was Welsh, really, not not really English, but... Yeah, well, there's, uh, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon and the Viking stuff's all mixed in with that, too, yeah. in England. Um, so I want to try to give you, uh, give you a... Uh, I've done it before, and maybe not a great job of it, but I want to try to give you an, um, an illustration. So when he says here... To survive, our tiny brains need to tame the blizzard of information that threatens to overwhelm us. It's like, you know, we have this, what Jordan Peterson calls, a level of analysis. So, I look out at you, I see you. I, behind you, I see the wall. You know, this is, this is the level of analysis that my consciousness is aware of. But there's way more than that going on. So, if I had the ability to look at your cellular activity, your molecular activity, your atomic activity... If I was able to look at all of that stuff in the walls behind you and, and every, you know, all this sort of thing, imagine experiencing all of that at once. It would look like, I think, that, that painting behind you. <laughs> it would look like Net of Being by Alex Gray. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like, imagine that I'm not just talking to Kyle and seeing the, the hairs on your chin and seeing, you know, even the most minute details I can observe about you. Imagine observing it all and not just on this level, but on every level. How would I even be able to talk to you? I wouldn't. 
I would be overwhelmed by everything. I wouldn't know which way is up. I wouldn't know which level I can address. Am I talking to your atoms? You know, am I talking to your molecules? Am I talking yeah, to your like, organs? What are you talking to? Exactly. Yeah, it's weird. It man. would be overwhelming. And so that helps you to understand how reality is way more than we can possibly manage to understand, even though our human brains are the most powerful computer known to man. We can process information quicker than a quantum supercomputer. It's probably an overreach, but you know what I mean. There's no computing system that is more powerful than the brain. And yet, we can't, we can't understand but a small, tiny fraction of what's going on at any one time. Yeah. You talking about the computers and the brain, it's like, I know that there are computers that can do things that our brains can't. Mm -hmm. uh, and computers can do things at a speed that um, at least like the average person can't do them. Um, but it is, it's hard to explain why brains are better, but they are, you know, like, what is it? Uh, what would you say the mm -hmm. difference is? Uh, so I would say that it has to do with the network in your brain. Yeah. So it's like there's a there's a quantum idea that comes up, and this is how quantum computers are so much better than regular computers. So in regular computers, you got bits, ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. In quantum computers, you got one, zero, and one and zero. So it's both. It can be both one and zero simultaneously. And just by adding that third variable, you get so many more combinations of possibilities that it exponentially increases the speed in which computers can compute. Got it. I look at that as the neuronal network in our brain and every connection in our synapses in our brain is a new pathway and a new combination. So those electrical signals that are going in, in you know, off in your brain can make connections in all sorts of different ways. It, it's almost like an infinite number of possibilities and that allows you to do magical things with your co cognition that I can't understand. That's cool. That's how, that's sort of what makes sense to me. That makes sense to me, too. I like it. All right. Uh, all right. Enough of that. Let's get into the next section, which is called God's Motivation. It's in, and it's connected to God's debris. So well, this is going to be, it's kind of the middle of the book, actually. Okay. But it's going to be kind of the punchline. This is, I mean, the book is called God's Debris. All right. So the guy says, so what motivates God? I can conceive of only one challenge for an omnipotent being, the challenge of destroying himself. But a God who had one nagging question, what happens if I cease to exist, might be motivated to find the answer in order to complete his knowledge. How would we know either way? We have the answer. It is our existence. The fact that we exist is proof that God is motivated to act in some way. And since only the challenge of self-destruction could interest an omnipotent God, it stands to reason that we are God's debris. So, so let me stop for a second. Just the context here that you're missing is they're talking about the nature of God, and they both agree that God is omnipotent, which means he can do whatever he wants. That's all it means. It means he's not restricted. He can do whatever he wants. In theory, God can make reality whatever he wills. And they're saying, like, if, if God is like that, what, what would God want to do? Like, if God could do anything he wanted at any moment and make anything possible at any, at, you know, right instantly— it would be kind of boring, like to do anything. It's like, I could do anything, so why would I do anything? I can do anything, so why would I do anything? It's like there's no motivation there. So why would an omnipotent God even create the universe? He could do, he already knows it. He could do anything. So what's the challenge in doing anything? There, but, there, but there might 
potentially be a challenge in what he suggests. Could an omnipotent God who can do anything, could it destroy itself? Ooh, okay. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, could God make a rock so heavy he couldn't pick it up? Have you ever heard that, that, yeah. that, that thought experiment? It's one of those things. What would, be, <coughs> what would be interesting enough for a God who could do anything to take any action at all? It might be to see if he could destroy himself. And That's, it's an interesting idea. It is an interesting idea. Um, yeah. And then if God do, did destroy himself, then we are God's debris. That's what he says. God damn, that's beautiful. I don't really know what that means. Let's read. The next section is called God's debris. All right, it goes like this. The debris consists of two things. First, there are the smallest elements of matter, many levels below the smallest things scientists have identified. Now, I want to point out here that now the old man is talking beyond what modern science can say. He's sort of like making this up here, but it's just just a part of the dialogue. It's like the guy that he's talking to knows more. Maybe he knows everything. Like maybe he knows he knows more clearly than sci- scientists know, or at least he pretends like he does. So what what you find at this point is that the guy he's he's talking to, this old man, he's some kind of some kind of supernatural guy. You know, like he he knows things for certain or he's speaking like he does. So he says the de- the debris consists of the smallest elements of matter. Everything is made of some other thing. And those things in turn are made of other things. Over the next hundred years, scientists will uncover layer after layer of building blocks, each smaller than the last. At each layer, the differences between types of matter will be fewer. At the lowest layer, everything is exactly the same. Matter is uniform. (coughs) Those are bits of God. The second part of the debris I asked, he says, probability. Probability is an infinitely powerful force. Probability is omnipotent and omnipresent. It influences every coin at any time in any place instantly. It cannot be shielded or altered. And probability is not limited to coins and dice and slot machines. Probability is the guiding force of everything in the universe, living or non-living, near or far, big or small, now or any time. If your God is just a metaphor, why should I care about him, I said. Because everything you perceive is a metaphor for something your brain is not equipped to fully understand. God damn, that's good. God is as real as the clothes you are wearing and the chair you are sitting in. They are all metaphors for something you will never understand. That's good. God damn. Whether you understand the true nature of your food or not, you still have to eat. We We can only act on our perceptions, no matter how faulty. The best we can do is to periodically adjust our perceptions our delusions, if you will, to make them more consistent with our logic and common sense. All right, so I didn't exactly, um, I, I mean, I, maybe it's in here a little deeper, but I wanted to say that when, he, when he's talking about God's debris, um, he does specifically bring up the Big Bang. So he okay. says, when God, when God had the challenge, when he recognized the challenge that he might be able to destroy himself, and he, and he, and he willed that and blew up, that that was the Big Bang. Which is what Daniel Torridon told us when we, were, we first talked about this. That that was kind of the, kind of the uh, punchline. Yeah. But it's the middle of the book. So, 
I don't know if I want to ask, but what is the determination? Can God destroy himself? I would, I would assume no. Well, he says, he, he answered that. He says, uh, right here it says. We don't have to, I mean, if we're going to get there, we don't have to ruin. Oh, we already, we already got there. It oh, was, it, yeah, it was right here. It's the, in the last bit. He says. Oh, he's, yeah, right, <clears> he says, right here where it says we have the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what he says. He's, he's like, you know, God has a nagging question. What happens if I cease to exist? Um, and, and he asks, how would we know? How would we know if God did? And the old man says, it is our existence. The fact that we exist is proof that God is motivated to act in some way. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand. That That I do understand. I want the answer to whether or not God can destroy himself. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah, that, that in here? Well, it, the implication is that God just, um, God doesn't destroy himself, but he, he in trying to, he, tr- he transformed himself into something some, else. Yeah, okay. And that's the cosmos. That's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a that's a pandeistic sort of perspective. Um, I mean, it is a pandeistic perspective. Yeah. Um, I have some objections to it, but I think it's beautiful. So cool. any so anyway, God blows himself up. He becomes the smallest elements of matter and something called probability. And probability is the likelihood of something happening. So you've got you've got the basic building blocks that that can that can become everything that we see, and you have this force this this non-physical force called probability that's guiding all of this along somehow. Um, he hasn't exactly explained that yet, but this is so beautiful, man. He said, he said, if your God is just a metaphor, why should I care about him? Because everything you perceive is a metaphor for something your brain is not fully equipped to understand. Boom shakalaka. That's a, if your God is just a metaphor, why should I care about him? That was like me when I was 19. Yes. Yes. Um, and then the answer, because everything you perceive is a metaphor for something your brain is not equipped to fully understand. Yes. And it, it really is going back to what we talked about in the beginning. When I was like that, it was because I leaned on a bunch of science that I didn't fucking understand even a little bit. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I mean, it's just faith. It's just, you know. Yep. And there's another thing here, this this idea of representation. It's like. It's like, well, like I said, I look at you and I see a certain level of analysis. I see Kyle as the macro being, but you're more than that. You're way more than that. There's all kinds of other things going on inside of you and, and that I can't, I can't observe. I can't experience. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at is an avatar. What I'm looking at is, a, is a, a fraction of what you actually are. And I, and I assume that I'm looking at the whole picture, that I'm experiencing what you are and I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm experiencing a metaphor. That the, me- the metaphor I can understand. What you are, I can't. What you really are, I can never understand. Yep. It's crazy. That's God, baby. That's God. <laughs> and then this last bit where he talks about, you know, the best we can, he said, we can only act on our perceptions no matter how faulty. The best we can do is periodically adjust them when we realize that we're kind of, you know, on the wrong path. Yeah. That's exactly what Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning is all about. Okay. Well, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. You know? It's understanding your metaphors, and when your metaphors start to fail, then you got to change that. You got to change them. Yep. Update. Anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right, this looks like a longer one. Oh boy, yeah, we may have to stop a little bit. This this one is called God's consciousness. How long are we at right now? Uh, we don't don't usually talk shop in the middle of it. Okay, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Uh, the only reason I ask is because I I might have to pee. <laughs> well, if you let me know, man, we'll stop this damn thing. You got pee right now? No, we can we can keep going. All right, he says we can keep going, but what I'm going to do is pause it, and then we'll be right back. And we're back. Woo! <laughs> Feel better there, bud? Yeah, that was a good one. 
while you were up there, I was uh, reading this next bit to see if I could if I could condense it at all mm-hmm. because there's a lot more notes than I expected, but I can't. Yeah, so it's, it's good stuff. I'm gonna read this. I'm gonna read this from start to finish, right. and then we'll talk. Maybe you need to take notes if there's anything that pops in your head while I'm doing this. This is called God's consciousness, and and this section comes right on the heels of us talking about probability, okay, and how it's you know. Probability and these basic forms of matter are what God blew up into. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Uh, the uh, the young man says, or excuse me, the old man asks, if the universe were to start over from scratch and all the conditions that created life were to happen again, would life spring up? And the kid says, I guess so. If it starts out the same and nothing changes along the way, it should turn out the same. He says, that's right. Our existence was programmed into the universe from the beginning. <coughs> Guaranteed by the power of probability. The time and place of our existence were flexible, but the outcome was assured because sooner or later, life would happen. Probability forces the coin toss to be exactly 50-50 at some point, assuming you keep flipping forever. Likewise, probability forced us to exist exactly as we are. Only the timing was in question. Okay. So, so if you have an infinite universe... The probability of life forming is only a matter of timing, right? It's like Shakespeare and the Monkeys. Like Shakespeare and the Monkeys. That's a good name for a band, dude. <laughs> Shakespeare, Shakespeare and the Monkeys. And the monkeys. <laughs> yeah. Right, let me keep going. He says, as we speak, engineers are building the internet to link every part of the world in much the same way as a fetus develops a central nervous system. Virtually no one questions the desirability of the internet. The instinct of beavers to, <coughs> is, is to build dams. The instinct of humans is to build communication systems. The need to build the internet comes from something inside us, something programmed, something we can't resist. Society's intelligence is merging over the internet, creating, in effect, a global mind that can do vastly more than any individual mind. Eventually, everything that is known by one person will be available to all. There is no logical limit to how much our collective, po- collective power will grow, A billion years from now, if a visitor from another dimension observed humanity, he might perceive it to be one large entity with a consciousness and purpose, and not a collection of relatively uninteresting individuals. And then the young young man says, are you saying we're evolving into God? The old man says, I'm saying we're the building blocks of God in the early stage of reassembly. Mm. (laughs) He says, I think I know... That's, That's interesting. Yes. The young man says... I think I'd know if, if, if we were a part of an omnipotent being. And the old man says, would you? That's, uh, that's pretty arrogant. <laughs> would you? Your skin cells are not aware that they are part of a human being. The skin cells are not equipped for that knowledge. They are not equipped to do what, excuse me, they are equipped to do what they do and nothing more. So you're saying God blew himself into bits? I guess that was the Big Bang. And now he's piecing himself back together? He is discovering the answer to his only question, the old man says. Does God have consciousness yet? Does he know he's reassembling himself? The old man says, he does. Otherwise, you could, have not, otherwise you could not have asked the question, and I could not have answered. And that reminded me of the Matrix. Would you have broken it if I hadn't said anything? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember when the he breaks mace. the lamp? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so he says... <laughs> the oracle. Does, does he know he's reassembling himself? The old man says, he does. Otherwise, you could not have asked the question, and I could not have answered. Explain that. Well, God is the young man, and God is the old man. Right? The young man's asking the question. The old man's answering the question. 
God exists because the young man's asking the question and the old man's answering it. Otherwise, they would. He's saying God, God asked the question. That's why he blew himself up. That's why yeah. the Big Bang happened, and that's why life evolved. Okay. So life evolved and started asking the same question that okay. God asked when he blew himself up. Okay. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> the, proof, the proof that God exists and, uh, and is aware is, is the fact that existence is here. And that's inevitable based on probability. And probability is a part of God. That's what he's describing. It's hard. It's hard, man. It's hard. Well, I mean, it's it. It is that it's hard, but it's also. Can you scroll back yeah, up sure, a little bit? Sure, yeah. uh, he says, "Does God have consciousness yet? Does He know He's reassembling Himself?" And he says, "He does. Otherwise, you could not have asked the question, and I could not have answered." Um, I don't know. I, I just feel like that's not. I, I don't feel like that's uh, a satisfactory explanation. Yeah, an explanation. And, and that I'm fine with it not being that, honestly. Like, uh, sometimes something is meaningful without, you know, fully explaining, like, the function of something. Um, but, yeah, I don't feel like that, that that's, like... Uh, and I think that's the point. Okay. I think that ev- almost every bit of this book... Is designed to get you to ask exactly the question you asked. Does that make sense? And it gets you thinking about it. And how might it make sense? And that and that gets your that gets your cogs turning and gets whole new ideas coming out of your brain that you've never considered before. Okay. Like for instance, when he says, "Does God have consciousness yet?" See, I I disagree with the premise. I, I think God is consciousness. Yeah. And if you said, "Is does God know that He's reassembling Himself?" What that means is, does God know he's the universe and everything happening in it? And the old man says, yes. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here to ask the question, and I wouldn't be here to answer it. Because God is consciousness, so is the young man, so is the old man. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it just it's just designed to get you thinking. I do what like the, the Matrix thing. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Whether or not you agree with it, I, I don't. I think it's besides the point. Sure. This guy is just trying to get you to think about these interesting ideas. Yeah, I mean that's definitely uh, a good way to do it by phrasing things in, in in a way that's like easy to disagree with. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, it's like some people are going to agree, some people are going to disagree, but for different reasons. Yeah. And if you ha- and if you start ha- having that conversation with people, it's just it's just an enlightening process. Yep. You know. I mean, yep. I, yeah. I mean, I get your I get your perspective. Uh, let's see, where are we at here? Uh, God, physics of God dust is the next section. Yeah, I think we can get through this. Physics of God dust. Physics of God dust. All right. Starts like this. Most scientists agree that the universe is big, but finite. He says, what if I took a rocket to the edge of the universe, then I kept going? Right? So if the universe, he says, scientists agree the universe is big, but it's not infinitely big. It's got, it's got boundaries. And the young man says, what if I took a rocket to the edge of the universe, and I kept going? What then? He says, you are always part of the universe by definition. So when your rocket goes beyond the current boundary, the boundary moves with you. You become the outer edge for that direction. But the universe is still a specific size, not infinite. Okay. That's pretty cool. 
That is cool. It's like, if that's true, if the, if the cosmos is like a bubble and it's got an edge and you got to the end of it and kept going, that you would just be stretching the edge. And what's, what's expanding the universe is you. And potentially there's no end, there's no lit limit to that. You could just keep going. It doesn't make it infinite. It just makes the it just makes the edge of the universe you. You you're the edge of the universe. I guess I I think that in a way. I don't know. I I guess it's not infinite, but I don't know. I think if it keeps going forever, if it has the capability to keep going for, it kind of is infinite it, it too. Kind, it kind of is. So. But at any one moment, it's still you're still the edge of it. You yeah. know. That's an interesting thought. It is it's an interesting weird. thought, but because it also makes a connection between you and the and in the existence of of reality. It's like somehow you're connected to how big the universe can be. Mm-hmm. That that you start you're starting to conflate more and more yourself with God. And I every time that happens, man, I like it. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, he says, um, let's see. Uh, it says, you're always part of the universe, so when your rocket goes beyond the boundary, the boundary moves with you. All right, so he says, gravity is the result of probability. So now we're on a slightly different topic. Gravity is the result of probability. So now what Scott Adams is going to do is he's going to give you a new theory of gravity. It's not Newton's idea of gravity that, that you know, things are always um, pulled towards the center mass. So if you drop an apple, it falls to the earth because it's trying to get to the center of the earth. Uh, or or new, um, Einstein's version, which is the 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 geometry of space time, right? So, y- you know, planets are orbiting the sun because the sun is creating a dip in space time, and planets are kind of going around that dip, like that thing at the mall where you put the penny in and it it goes around and around and around down that spiral. That's what's happening with planets orbiting. It has nothing to do with a force that pulls something towards the center of mass. It has to do strictly with things moving on a straight line and 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 a warped space-time, you know, scenario. <coughs> Those are the only ideas of gravity that we ever hear. Yep. We're about to hear a new one. Dilbert's theory of gravity. Dilbert's, yeah, we're going to call this, <laughs> going to call this Dilbert's theory of gravity. All right, so it's going to take a minute. All right, he says, reality has a pulse, a rhythm, for lack of, for lack of better words. God's dust disappears on one beat and reappears on the next in a new position based on probability. If a bit of God dust disappears near a large mass, say, a planet, then probability will cause it to pop back into existence nearer to the planet on the next beat. Probability is highest when you are near massive objects. Or to put it another way, mass is the physical expression of probability. God damn, that's mind-bendy. I'm going to need to chew on that one a little bit. Yeah, it's going to take a minute, but let me keep going. If you observe God dust that was near the Earth... It would look like it was being sucked towards the planet. But there is no movement across space in the sense that we understand it. The dust is continuously disappearing in one place and appearing in another, with each new location being nearer the Earth. Newton and Einstein gave us formulas for gravity, but neither man answered the question of why objects seem attracted to each other. Einstein's language about bent space and the description of god dust are nothing more than mental models. So now he's saying that what he's just talked about here, these little bits of God dust disappearing and reappearing based on laws of probability, that that model explains gravity the same as Einstein's model of bent space-time. But there's more. We're not, we're not done. He says, you haven't explained orbits under, under your theory. 
how could a moon orbit a planet and not be sucked into it? And then he says, the old man says, you are, you are ready for the second law of gravity. There is one other factor that influences the position of matter when it pops back into existence. That force is inertia, for lack of a better word. Although God dust is unimaginably small, it has some probability of popping into existence exactly where another piece of, gu- of God dust exists. When that happens, one of the particles has to find a new location and alters its probability. So there's always a dual probability influencing each particle of God dust. All apparent motion in the universe is based on those competing probabilities. All right, so I've got to stop for one second. So things are all moving, you know, spinning and moving in the cosmos, and everything's moving. And there's really no explanation for motion apart from the, this Big Bang idea. That everything got thrown out and that's, that's what caused all the motion. He's saying no. He's saying everything is just disappearing and reappearing based on probability. And when it reappears and happens to be in the same place as another piece of God dust, that probability changes. And that causes motion because it has to go. It has to go somewhere else. So all the motion that you see in the cosmos wasn't caused by a Big Bang. It's simply the, the consequence of probability. It's simply the consequence of changing probabilities based on physical laws. That's, that's pretty crazy. So there's a way, according to Dilbert, there's a way for you to understand motion as simply a consequence of probability. So let's keep going. There's more. Okay. He says, Earth's moon, for example, has a certain probability of coming toward the Earth and a certain probability of moving in a straight line. The two probabilities are, by chance, in balance. The young man says, the trouble with your theory, I said, is that matter doesn't pop in and out of existence. The old man says, actually, matter pops into and out of existence all the time. That's what a quantum leap is. So, okay, so we'll stop there for a second. Quantum Leap was also a TV show back when I was a kid. (laughs) What was was the guy's name? I do not remember. Uh, I can't remember. Ted? (laughs) He looked like a Ted. Um, Where was I? Okay. All right, so this this whole idea of... uh, of matter, he's calling God dust, but matter popping in and out of existence. That 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 is, according to quantum uh, quantum mechanics, that is exactly what happens to um, to particles at that level, that small size. And that's an interesting thing too, because when a when an when an electron that's circling a atom disappears and then reappears somewhere else, that happens when it jumps in orbital, or it happens when it when an electron goes from one atom to another, you know. Because of, because of the interaction between them. Where does it go when it's gone? Into another dimension. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, some, some physicists would say that. But maybe it goes into, into a state that's non-physical, and then it reappears back into, into physicality. Maybe it's something like that. Yeah. Like, like we were talking about gravity and the soul and magnetism being non-physical. Maybe it pops out of existence, and that just means it's not physical, and then it's physical again, then it's not physical. And there are laws that govern that. And that's not bullshit, man. That's it's called quantum tunneling. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, that happens on the on the quantum level. Our best science says that that matter disappears and reappears all the time. What that means, we have no idea. We have no idea. But it, it actually happens, according to, according to Dilbert. That might actually explain motion and the creation of the cosmos and everything else. And it might exp- it might explain gravity. That's. I mean. I definitely like it. It's uh, 
it's interesting. I also really like you've got this guy's name here in bold, Robert Dickgraff. <laughs> Dykgraff. Oh, Dykgraff. So I've talked okay. about I've talked about him before. He he works for the Institute of Advanced Study and um, somewhere in Europe, and he's a f- crazy smart physicist. And he comes up in these physics documentaries all the time. And he said something about entanglement exactly like this. He said that he said that um, particles entangled um, on the quantum level that might actually be the same thing as what we call space. Mm. That space is created by connections between between particles. Okay. And um, and that that this is all connected. This this idea of quantum tunneling and um, entanglement. That this is all connected. It may be responsible for what we perceive as space and time. And I just thought that was so close to what Dilbert here was trying to say Sorry. that it was worth bringing up. It's, it's yeah. not like it's a super fringy idea because somebody like Robert Dykroff, who's you couldn't you couldn't get a it's more Dick Graf. Dick Graf. Um, that sounds painful on Dick Graf. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, I just I just thought that was interesting. Uh, also, I don't say Dilbert disrespectfully. I, I like Scott Adams, by the way, just yeah. for everyone listening. I don't say it disrespectfully either, but I can't say that I've ever uh, read many of the Dilbert comics. I think Dilbert's like a like a kind of a, a dim-witted, like kind of an idiot. No, I don't know. I could be wrong, though. Yeah. I haven't read a whole lot of Dilbert either. Yeah. All right. Scott Adams smart guy, though. Anything Obviously. else? Anything else on that? It's rest the, probably the most difficult bit to talk about because it's... Because when we start talking about quantum mechanics, it's way beyond my... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, I talked earlier about having faith in science, you know, um, and I feel on some level when I'm like, when I find something in quantum physics that like, I like, that like makes sense and mm. like jives with what I want to believe, yeah. <laughs> um, that... I feel like I'm kind of doing this. Like, I don't fucking understand it, but I'm like, I'll trot out the, I'll trot out this article for you, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I do that too. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I pick and choose what I, what I adopt um, based on what sounds interesting or sounds like it coheres with some of my beliefs. Um, the stuff that I hear that doesn't, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not like digging into that stuff. So this is all, you know, t- t- sure. <laughs> it's a grain of salt situation, but it's uh you know, this podcast is about it's about you and me, man. We're letting people know uh, absolutely the in, the interior go- ongoings of our of our minds, man. And some of that Almost some of that shit gets excluded. Going on a year now, by the way. Oh, in fact, yeah, a month uh, less than a month from now will be our year anniversary. That's crazy. That's crazy, man. Well, all right. This next bit is about light, and it's mind blowing. You want to get into it? Yeah, absolutely. All right. The old man says, "Consider light. Our world appears infused with light's energy." But what is light? If you were a spaceship racing a beam of light and you were moving 99% the speed of light, how much faster would light be? The the young man says, about 1% of the speed of light, obviously. Old man says, not according to Einstein. He proved that the light beam would be faster than your rocket ship by the speed of light, no matter how fast you're traveling. What if two rocket ships were racing the beam of light and one was 99% as fast and the other was 50% as fast? The light can't be faster than both of them by exactly the same speed. He says, if I were a passenger in the slow rocket ship that you used in your example, I would observe you pulling away from me at a high speed. But from the perspective of the beam of light, neither of us is moving at all. What in the fuck? What? All right, so he says, so what the heck is light? (laughs) Okay. Light is the outer limit of what is possible. 
what? Yeah, let me keep going. It's not a physical thing. It's a boundary. Scientists agree that light has no mass. By analogy, think of, think of Earth's horizon. The horizon is not a physical thing. You can never reach the horizon, no matter how fast you move. Okay, so you're a ship, you're sailing on the ocean, you can see the edge of the world. But no matter how far you travel, the horizon just keeps moving further and further, right? That's what he's saying light is. It's just the, it's just the, the, uh, the boundary. It's the, it's the limit of what's possible. So hold on. Kyle's giving me a look like, what in the fuck what are you getting mean? at? <laughs> All right, here we go. We observe things that we believe are light, like the searchlight in the night sky, the cloud red sunset. But those things are not light. They are merely boundaries between different probabilities. You see my note there? Say what? Say what? I am having trouble imagining light as not being a physical thing. How can it influence physical things if it is not physical itself? That's kind of where we started this conversation. He says, there are plenty of non-physical things that affect the world. Gravity is not physical. Probability is not physical. But it influences a coin toss anywhere in the universe. An idea is not physical, and yet it can change civilization. Can't argue with that, man. Mm -hmm. He says, suppose I write a hurtful insult on a piece of paper, and I hand it to you. This note is physical, but when you look at it, the information enters your mind over a pathway of light. Remember that light has no mass. Like magnetic fields, light exists in no physical form. When the insult on the note travels across the light path from the note to your eyes, it is completely non-physical for the duration of the trip. Okay. <laughs> it is a pure transfer of probability from me to you. When the insult registers in your mind, physical things start to happen. Light is the messenger of probability, but neither the light nor the message has mass. That's crazy. It is crazy, right? Light and, and information, they don't have mass, meaning they're not physical. That, there's no argument there. Yeah. Yet it travels on light into my mind, and it's non-physical for the duration of the trip, he says. That's fucking trippy, man. So maybe, trippy, bro. So maybe the, the boundary he's talking about is the boundary between the physical and the non-physical. Whoa. Whoa. God damn, that's amazing. I, I feel like I, the stuff that I'm saying makes it seem like I'm making a joke of it, and I kind of am in a way, but, it, like, it is crazy. But I, the reason I'm kind of laughing at it is because I don't know, like, I really don't know what else to say about it. It's so, like, it makes sense. Like, what, that last paragraph really, like, illustrated it well, what he means. Yeah. Uh, before that, I was kind of like, what? What? What is this? None of this makes any sense. So this is an idea that I wish I would have encountered before I did my episode on light, because mm -hmm. this is so compelling to me. Because I don't understand what light is. I don't understand why the speed of light is fixed and why it's the same regardless of, uh, you know, it's relative, um, according to Einstein. Why is it the same? You know, it's it's like it... it Light is telling us something about the about the universe that we don't understand, and what he's saying is, if what light is representing is at the boundary of the physical, then I'm, I'm getting a little bit lost in my head. But but it's, imagine this: it's like when I think about God, it's like something I can never reach, just like the boundary. It's something I'm chasing after but can never reach. And God is non-physical. Okay. Imagine you're traveling, uh, you know, physics tells you that you can't travel faster than the speed of light. Nothing can. But imagine you're traveling at the speed of light. It's like you're knocking on the door 
of God. You're, 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 you're chasing after him and you're as close as you can ever get to him. And if only you could go one, you know, one fraction of a, of a mile an hour more, then you would cease to be physical and you would become non-physical. Just like those atoms popping in and out of existence. And when you pop out of existence, yeah. you're God. And when you pop back in, you're physical reality. Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't know. For some reason, it makes me think of like, uh, like vibrations. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, like uh, <laughs> you said. Oh, um, I just think of that, like when something is vibrating, it's like uh, how deep, it's almost how deep is it in your ass when it's vibrating? Kyle? I mean, it's pretty deep. <laughs> okay, keep going. But uh, if something is vibrating, it's almost like it's in multiple places at once. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and like you think about um, like a hummingbird. Mm-hmm. Think about its wing. Yes. It can flap 90 times in a second. Jesus. In my mind, that wing is, like, in a bunch of different places at once. It's, like, in this, like, vibrating, um, like, super estate where it's, you know, it's, like, all over the place. That's amazing. Um, And that's, I don't know, something about that made me think of that. So there's a picture that comes in my head when you say that, and it's the wheel of a bicycle. So if you're ever one of those people that worked on one, you flip it over, you spin the tire. It's fun to do. You can stick, you can, you can stick a stick in there and, and stop it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but when you look at that wheel and it's not moving, you can see all the holes in it. You can see all the spokes in it. But when you spin it, it it's like a solid object. And if you try to stick a stick in, if it's going fast enough, it's, it is like a solid object. You're yeah. not going to be able to stick it through there. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, it makes me think like... That's, a, that's interesting. Yeah. It makes me think that the that the the I don't know what the analogy is if it's mass or if it's just reality that that the physicality of the thing is created by the motion and it's an illusion it's not a real thing exactly and that's the analogy I'm trying to make is how God can be the universe simultaneously God is non-physical but when you spin that fucking spoke man it becomes physical or at least the illusion of something mm-hmm. physical yeah. And that accords with what I think is it is the truth of reality. It's some somehow it's an, it's illusory. Somehow it's not as real as we think it is. And I and I don't know how exactly. Yeah, I like it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's back get back to Dilbert here. He says, when we feel the warmth of sunlight, we are feeling the effect of increased probabilities and therefore increased activity in our skin cells, not the effect of photons striking our skin. Photons have no mass, the scientists tell us. That is another way to say that they do not exist except as a concept. Right? They don't exist as a physical thing, only as a concept. Right? If you're a materialist and everything's physical, then what is something that, that, that isn't physical? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good goddamn question. I'd like to know how uh, old Sam Harris, what, what's his answer to that? I think we can get that dude on the podcast. Listen, you reach out to Harris. I'll reach out to Dr. Fauci. Right. We'll see if oh, we can get fuck. we'll see if we can get the experts on. Dr. Fauci, I'll, I'm going to call it. We'll never come on this podcast. <laughs> Sam Harris, we might be able to get. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> All right, here we go. He says, "Light can be thought of as zones of probability that surround all things. A star, by virtue of its density, has high probability that two of its god dust particles will pop into existence in the same location, forcing one of them to adjust, creating a new and frantic probability." That activity, the constant adjusting of location and probability, is what we perceive as energy. Dude. So we're just talking about physicality. We're talking about 
We're talking about the building blocks of matter, whatever that is, and we're talking about probability. Those are the things, according to Dilbert, God is made of, or God blew himself into. And what he's saying here is if you have something like a star, it's got a lot of mass, it's very dense, so the probability of one of its particles reappearing close is way higher than it, than it appearing you know, in some distant part of the universe. Mm-hmm. And because of that, each time that happens, they pop, they pop in and out of existence. Because they're so dense, there's so many other particles in a star, the likelihood of it popping into existence where another particle exists is basically 100%. Yeah. When that happens, it has to change probabilities again. When the probabilities are changing frantically and rapidly, that is what we call energy. Okay. That is what all that motion and all that solar flares coming off the sun, that's what that is. Okay. It's not the conversion of hydrogen into helium, like we say it is. It's something like the activity of probability on the, on the quantum level. I love I, – I, it's like I've believed something uh, kind of in line with this theory of probability for a while at really? this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean we've talked about stuff like this before. Uh, um, but I – Having and I've known the word probability, you know, like I, I've I've had a, an understanding of what the word probability means, but I never really um, attached the word probability to it, and it's it's perfect. Um, well, let's talk about that for a minute because it's it is confusing to me. Yeah, it's confusing for the, sure. You know, the idea that you flip a coin and it will either land heads or tails it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be mysterious at all. It just seems to be random. But if you do it enough, it's not random. It's 50-50. Yeah. It's not random. If it were random, it, w- it would never be 50-50. It would always be something different. Yeah. But if you flip it enough times, it will always be 50-50. There's something weird about that. That is weird. It's like a structure in a law that, w- that governs things that we can't, we have no idea what it is. We can't point to it. Like probability is a mathematical concept. It's not a, it's not a physical thing. It's a mathematical concept. How could a mathematical concept be behind the physical laws that control the universe. A mathematical concept? I mean, a concept exists in mind, in a mind. It, does, it doesn't just exist in the cosmos, you know? It's, it, it's completely baffling. Yeah, it is. I don't know what else to say about <laughs> that, but I mean, um, yeah, no, I really don't know what else to say. Well, back to Dilbert then. All right. All right, he says, the reason you cannot catch up to a light beam, no matter how fast you travel is that the zone of probability moves with you like your shadow. Trying to race light is like trying to run away from your own thoughts. The so-called speed of light is simply the limit to how far a particle can pop into existence from its original location. If a particle pops into existence a short distance from its original position, the perceived speed of the particle will be slow. If each new appearance is a great distance, the perceived speed will be much faster. There is no practical limit to how far from its original distance a particle is likely to appear. That limit is what gives light an apparent top speed. That, um... I don't know why, but for some reason, something about that made it click. I forget what exactly... Or it made something click. Mm. Um, I forget what exact line it oh, was. Oh, I, I, it was... Um, it was uh, right before I got to this stuff. It was... Uh, if a if a particle pops into... Ex- uh, hold on. The so-called speed of light is simply the limit to how far I think a particle that was can it. pop into existence from its original location. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So there's some sort of law of probability governing 
governing light. And how far away, you know, the probability of how far away it can pop in and out of existence from its original position is this, what we call the speed of light. It's the boundary. It's amazing. That is. Um, boy. So we got a couple more sections, but we're almost done. Um, what I think is so interesting about this guy is that he's described light in a way that the science textbooks don't describe it. He's described gravity in a way the science books don't describe it. And both of those, first of all, the fact that this man came up with both of those ideas is amazing. Maybe he borrowed them from someone else, but he didn't say That's so. That's what I want to know, yeah. But, yeah, it's, I agree with you. It is amazing. It just makes you wonder. That, just, that much shit in this tiny little book? In that book. tiny little book, man. It's crazy. It, it makes you wonder. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say, damn it. All right. This next section is called Fighting God. Here we go. Doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> um, Jordan Peterson's next book is going to be called Those Who Wrestle With God. Nice. Yeah, it's, anyway, Fighting God. Probability is the expression of God's will. So we were just asking what probability is. And the old wise man says, probability is the expression of God's will. It is, your, it is in your best interest to obey probability. Now this is going to get a little weird, but let me see what you think of this. I did, my question immediately is how do you do anything but obey probability? That's good. That's a good point. But let's see. Well, let's see. It says, when you take your education seriously, for example, you are greatly increasing your probability of contributing to God's reassembly. Okay. When you love and respect others and procreate responsibly, you are living within the safety cone of probability. You are, in a sense, fulfilling God's will. So I made a note here. Let me read this. I find it interesting that Earlier, the author stated that the people who discover truth, in however imperfect a form, are the people who went first and didn't die. Now, that's something I didn't read because I, uh, earlier because I didn't actually write that quote down, but it was in the book. Um, that the people, that, that the pioneers, the people that go, that, that discover something new, those are the people that went first and didn't die, right? So he's saying that, and, and here he's saying that recommending that we follow God's will uh, by according our behavior to the highest probability of success these seem like conflicting statements to me. It's like I'm guessing the first person to explore something new would be in an unknown probability situation. And yet, presumably, that is a noble and necessary risk in the quest for knowledge. So in one place, he's saying, uh, he's saying that you should, your behavior should, should, be, should accord with the highest probability of success. And if you know what that is, you should act in such a way that you're giving yourself the best probability of getting what you want or whatever. But earlier in the book, he said, you know, the people who, uh, who bring new ideas and new things into the world are the ones that went out there and, and risked it. It doesn't seem to me that playing it safe in the cone of probability and going out and risking yeah, things, is, you know what I mean? Yeah, that is contradictory. That's the one thing I'll say negative to him that wasn't consistent was that, that little bit. Yeah. I think it's minor, though. Got to risk it to get the biscuit. Got to risk it to get the biscuit. All right, he says, over time, everything that is possible happens. I love that. Say Uh, it again. Over time, everything that is possible happens. Yeah, I like that too. That is a fundamental quality of probability. And everything possible will happen over and over as long as God's debris exists. The clump of debris that that comprises your body and mind will break down and disintegrate someday. But a version of you will reappear in the future by chance. Hmm. Interesting. That is interesting. All right, we're almost done. This last bit is called Going Home. 
It's it's a, a newfound glory album. Wasn't it is, it? And, and yeah, a good one too. Yeah. Uh, all right, here it goes. We talked more about life and energy and probability. At times, I lost the sense of belonging to my own body. It was as if my consciousness expanded to include items in the room. This is the uh, the, the young man describing this the, this crazy conversation and how he felt. He says, I stared at my hand as, as it rested on the arm of the rocking chair and watched as the distinctions between wood and air and hand had disappeared. I don't remember leaving his house or walking to my van, but I do remember how everything looked. The city had bright edges. <coughs> Sound was crisp. Colors were vivid. Objects seemed more dimensional. I heard a phone call being made a block away and knew both sides of the conversation. I could feel every variation in airflow. Now that's it, but the reason I, I know it's strange, but the reason I, I gave you this is, this is the end of the book. The young man just had this crazy conversation with this old man that made him question everything he ever thought was sure. And he felt like enlightened. And when he left the, and he was walking home, this is how he felt. Uh, he said, um, at times I lost the sense of belonging to my own body. He said, um, I don't remember, or he said, uh, the ci- he said when he left, the city had bright edges, sound was crisp, colors were vivid, objects seemed more dimensional. He said, I heard a phone call block away and, and I knew both sides of the conversation. When I read that, I'm thinking to myself, this guy had this enlightenment experience and he's describing it on the way home the way I would describe a psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. When people say that they felt like they, they, they were, they, they, lost their sense of self, that they didn't belong to their own body anymore, that's a, that's a psychedelic experience. When, when people say that they do like mushrooms or LSD and their vision gets acute and everything mm-hmm. looks sharp and crisp, yep. that's a psychedelic experience. And they get the feeling that they know everything, like th- that they have this epiphany and this understanding. Yeah. What he's describing is knowing both sides of the conversation, even though he, ha- he can't hear it from where he's, he's standing. The objects seem more dimensional. Yes. Um, I don't know, for some reason, sometimes objects do, I don't know if you've experienced this, they do seem like there's more to them. You know, oh, yeah. like there's uh, something else going on other yeah. than just... Uh, Exactly. There's the stuff. There's there's something more. There's something more than the metaphor. Yeah. As Dilbert would say here. Um, And another thing is, he says, I don't remember leaving his house or walking to my van, but I do remember how everything looked. Yeah. Sounds like a trip to me, man. It's like you, you know, you're not even paying attention. You're just kind of like, it's like, oh shit, I'm here now. You know, Um, I've had that experience. Absolutely. Now this is something I think you wouldn't pick up on if you hadn't if you hadn't had a psychedelic or a mystic experience an intense psychedelic or a mystic experience you wouldn't have picked up on this. I think Scott Adams had a mystic experience mm-hmm. that was enlightening in the way that he's that that this guy's describing here that made him think all kinds of unusual ways about gravity and consciousness and stuff like we've been talking about. He wrote it up in this book like a fictional story about a conversation. But when he ends the, the book and he says, this is how the guy felt after he became enlightened, I'm like, dude, Scott Adams couldn't say, probably, because he's a public figure and, and you know, writes a newspaper, you know, just comic strip and all that. Scott Adams couldn't say, I, I had a mystic experience and this is the kind of shit that I, that, that I started to think about. Yeah. Instead, he put it into a fictional story and, and, and made it out like this. But this last paragraph here about 
the feeling of enlightenment, about the sense loss of the sense of self, about the the visual acuity increasing, about the feeling of of sort of all knowingness, all of those things that the young man has is talking about, all of those things here are associated with a psychedelic experience. Yep. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, it doesn't surprise me. Like if you know, at the end of this, Scott Adams was like, uh, "This all came to me in an acid trip." That I wouldn't have been surprised just oh. due to the subject matter. I wouldn't either. Um, but yeah, to to cap it off with that uh, that description of how that guy saying he felt that that seems like in my mind a deliberate nod to. At least the mystic experience, even if you're not going to say psychedelic drugs, um, you know. Yeah, so I agree. I don't know if it was a deliberate nod or if it was just, it probably was. It probably was. It's so perfect. I mean, it's so like, uh, I, I, I don't know. But it goes completely under the radar for someone who doesn't understand that experience. But if, yeah. you, but if, you, if you're one of them in the know, like, like I sort of felt myself to be, I picked up on that, man. Like, that's exactly what it sounds like to me. Yep. For sure. So I think God's Debris was Dilbert's uh, trip and mystic experience. I, I really, really, really enjoyed the book. There is a whole nother podcast of notes I have on this, so we're not done with God's Debris. Can you believe that? That's crazy. We're not done what with God's Debris. What the fuck else does he have to talk about? Well, it'll be a shorter one. Uh, we're right up, right up on two hours here, but let me see. I'm just going to pull this up for shits and gigs. God's Debris, episode two. Here we go. Uh, genuine belief, roadmaps, reincarnation, UFOs, and God, the skeptic's disease, which I think you were going to and love, um, ESP and luck, uh, ESP and pattern recognition, and the fifth level, which is something trippy. So that's it. That's what we're going to get Go next up time. To that reincarnation bit. I just want to read that. Oh, where is it? Note down. Oh. Reincarnation. Okay. Your inability to see other possibilities and your lack of vocabulary are your brain's limits, not the universe's. Yep. I like that. This thing about the skeptic's disease is great. Um, This really cuts to the heart of the uh, conflict between uh, rationality, scientific rationality, and mystical, like, irrationality. Yeah. Uh, This is going to be good, but we're going to save this for for the next one or or maybe one or two podcasts down the road. I think reincarnation, the reason that caught my eye is just because that's just something that's interesting to me. Like we talked about in that podcast, he said that, um, you know, given a long enough period of time, you're going to die, but you'll, some form of you will be back again. You know, like that seems like reincarnation. I mean, absolutely. It's weird. There's also the you know Newtonian laws of of, of energy. Energy is n- never created or destroyed, only transforming from one state to another. If there's a if there's a, a, a certain um, I can't remember what the phrase is for that, but there's a certain amount of energy in the universe. It's a steady amount of energy. Energy is not created or, or destroyed. So if that's a fundamental part of 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 the cosmos, then it stands to reason that 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 is the case with matter and energy of all kinds and maybe consciousness if you believe what I believe about consciousness being at the base of both. Yeah. So I think um, that materialist science is good for a lot of things, but I think it's very damaging to us in killing ideas like reincarnation. I think that there are reasons, uh, even if it's not true, you know, even if it's not real, you know, and whatever the fuck real means whatever in that context. Means, 
Um, but you know, l- like let's say you, there's no definition for it. Be, you know why it is real. Um, I think there's a reason that our ancestors believed those things for a long, long time. Um, and I think that even if they're not, again, real, I don't know. I just think that there's something valuable about it. That um, well, I think this boils down to what you just said about uh, the word real. So when we say real, from a logical scientific perspective, what we mean is physical, material. And what Dilbert's told us in no uncertain terms is look at things like gravity, look at things like magnetism, look at things like consciousness. You see non-physical reality. So if what is real is what is physical, and yet there are, there are things that are non-physical that are real, then we have, a, we have a misunderstanding of what the word real means. True that. True that. And with that, cue the music. Adios, bitches. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 